Returning from Gergesa to the western shore, Jesus found a multitude gathered to receive him, and they greeted him with joy. He remained by the seaside for a time, teaching and healing, and then repaired to the house of Levi Matthew to meet the publicans at the feast. Here, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, found him. This elder of the Jews came to Jesus in great distress and cast himself at his feet, exclaiming, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Sounds good, doesn't it? That, ladies and gentlemen, is Lumini, an app that you should have already downloaded by now, but I'm giving you another chance. Head over to the App Store, type Luminate World, and stop complaining about poor quality Christian material. We've changed the game. Download it, enjoy it, and tell a friend. This is just the beginning. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. If you'd have been able to be a part of the first 15 years of today's guest's life, You'd be surprised if you heard they'd even lived into their early 20s, never mind that they'd be on a Christian podcast having just preached hundreds of times all around the world. And yet here, right beside me, is one such as this. His testimony, the story of God's power displayed in his life, will likely shake you to your very core and hopefully make you see a few things a little differently. I hate spoilers, so you're not getting anything from me on this one. Wyatt Allen, hailing from the state of Missouri, has a story unlike any other, or almost any other. In the annals of biblical history, one figure stands out amidst the tumultuous tapestry of kings and kingdoms, King Manasseh of Judah. His tale is a gripping saga of power and passion, a narrative that delves into the very depths of human frailty. I mean, imagine a kingdom veiled in darkness, where the light of righteousness flickers faintly against the shadows of idolatry and sin. Manasseh ascends the throne, a mere child thrust into a world of political intrigue and spiritual upheaval and his reign takes the darkest of turns, as he forsakes the god of his forefathers, erecting altars to foreign deities and shedding innocent blood upon the sacred soil of Jerusalem. But amidst the chaos, there is a glimmer of hope, a divine reckoning that shatters the complacency of king and the apathy of nations. 
captured by the Assyrians, Manasseh finds himself shackled in the depths of Babylon, his kingdom crumbling like dust beneath the weight of divine judgment. The tale of King Manasseh truly is a journey of epic proportions, a saga of sin and salvation woven with threads of divine strength and human weakness. As we unravel the mysteries of his story, this story, we are left to ponder the timeless question. Can the darkest of hearts be touched by the light of redemption? To appreciate just how bad this guy was, I'll just, I'll just actually list off some of the wicked deeds of this man. It's almost like um, a police rap sheet, right? where you have one wrong and wickedness after the other. Mm. So it starts off by saying there that he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, like the abominations of the heathen. He built again the high places, which is where they worship false gods at. Mm -hmm. uh, he reared up the altars for Balaam. He made groves. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. So, you know, astrology. Right. He built altars in the house of the Lord. He built altars, so literally in the temple. Yeah. He's putting up altars to worship these false deities. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the courts of the house of the Lord. He caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And, you know, I'm just going to pause there on that one because yeah. um, burning your children, to imagine sacrificing your own children. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to be a murderer, but to kill your own children is a whole nother level. Right. And this king is guilty of this. Just a few more here. He observed times and used enchantments. He used witchcraft, which biblically speaking was completely forbidden. Mm -hmm. He dealt with a familiar spirit, uh, with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord, it goes on and says, provoked him to anger. He set up a carved image in the house of God again, it mentions. Uh, and then you know, it mentions how his influence as a great king caused the nation to stumble and fall. It says they made them to err. And to even do, and this is verse 9, to even do worse than the nations around them, the heathen, it calls them. And then I'll, I'll read this one here. This is from 2 Kings 21, verse 16. It says, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin, and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, I mean can you think of another king or even anybody else in the Bible who yeah. was who has a list of wickedness that long. Well, when you when you look at those kings, I mean, you know, even from the inception, you know, with Saul, you follow each and every king, even up to the dividing of the nation. You know, the northern kingdom has like 20 kings and none of them are any good. Mm -hmm. um, and they all have like, that's their sin. You know, like they did that and they did that one. And it's as if Manasseh is just all of them rolled up into one like the the boss king at the end that has every single evil and wicked yeah. trait and you think to yourself like all jokes aside where do you even find the time to yeah. be that bad you yeah. know how do you fit all of that into one life i i think of you know you read the story of like nebuchadnezzar mm -hmm. who was essentially looked at as like well from israel's perspective just the worst man in the world, right? Public enemy number one. 
he almost has nothing on Manasseh. You know, what did Nebuchadnezzar do that Manasseh didn't do? And in fact, it's, it's worse. It's worse for Manasseh because he's not the king of a pagan nation. He's not the king exactly. of Babylon. He's a king of God's people. And it just seems absurd that one man would do all of this. Yeah, and you know, his act, and I think to add, you know, insult to injury, the fact is his dad was a wonderful king. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, of all the kings of Israel, uh, King Hezekiah, the one who, his father, um, you know, he has some down points. You know, sure. he, he invited Babylon to come check out his stuff and got all proud. Yep. God humbled him through that experience. But, you know, he was raised, you know, fairly good, yeah. you know, and um, would actually just give you a little bit interesting tidbit here. So, you know, King uh, Hezekiah, he was uh, on the point of death. Mm-hmm. Isaiah came and basically told him, get your house in order. You're yep. about to die. You know the story. He asked for mercy. Uh, God answered and gave mercy to him, rolled the, the sundial back, what, 10 degrees, mm-hmm. gave him 15 more years of life. It was during that 15 years of life, three years in, that Manasseh, that Manasseh was born. Yeah, I, I don't even, I can't even conceive of the idea of, of what that means. If yeah. you know, But this king had such a... I'm talking about Manasseh now had such a negative impact on God's people, but his but he he was not raised mm-hmm. to follow after the pagan ways. So how do you think this happens? That's a great question. Um, you know, there I think there is a lesson here about the influence of parents upon their children, mm-hmm. and it is true that during during the end of uh, Hezekiah's life, uh, he did have kind of a a backsliding experience right. when he did invite the Babylonians over. So I don't know um, the impact that that had on his boy growing up. Mm. He was only 12 years old when he became king, King Manasseh did. So in those 12 years, what was his dad's influence? Mm. You know, as a father, you you know, you have two children, I have three. It it, it makes you really pause and reflect. You know, those few years you have, what kind of legacy are you leaving them? And we don't know. Am I going to be there? My oldest is nine right now. Will I be there past her 12th birthday? And if I'm not, what kind of life is she going to lead? Right. And based on the influence I've left. So I think um, Manasseh, uh, you know, he's, he's his own person. I don't know who he surrounded himself with. You know, this another story in the Bible of, of um, Rehoboam. Yeah, Rehoboam, he took the counsel of his friends over the counsel of his father's advisors, right. the older wise men. And I think maybe there's some of that in there. Do you have any insight? Well, I think just, you can argue that Hezekiah was a good king. Um, and of course, you mentioned what happens towards the end. But then there's Hezekiah's father and his father. And, and I just yeah. feel like the weight of the stories of past generations as, as you learn of. I mean, in the northern kingdom alone, it's, it's extensive. The southern kingdom, they, they have a little bit more luck with their kings. But it, it almost feels like Manasseh is, is just a culmination of the wickedness that that we see. And, you know, just the fact that we hear that he is worse. It, it doesn't mention that he's the worst king in Israel. It mentions that he's worse than the kings of heathen nations. <laughs> what an indictment. You know, which is which is an extreme thing to say because, you know, I think sometimes we think now of, you know, how, how things are presently and we think, oh, well, you know, there's there's countries over there or in that part of the world that do these, these you know, wicked things. But, but the wickedness that takes place now, I don't think can touch the wickedness that 
that was taking place in, in biblical times. You know, we're talking about like, I mean, we have our modern equivalents, I guess you could say, of child sacrifice. But, you know, burning babies alive mm -hmm. for pleasure, it seems just so foreign and so far detached. And yet Manasseh has found a way to, to usurp all of them. I mean, you're building idols inside the temple that, you know, we're, we're told God dwells in. Like, how far gone? Yeah. How far gone well, do you have to here's be? something that might uh, give us a clue as to what was happening or what caused him to do what he did. And it, this comes more from my experience than from the story because it doesn't give us a lot of details. Sure. But I know small compromises quickly mm -hmm. can become big ones. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when he started with the astrology mm -hmm. and with the soothsaying and with the communication with the dead mm -hmm. and with the witchcraft. Uh, but I do know from personal experience my involvement in that. Um, I got involved with witchcraft very early on mm -hmm. in my own personal story just by playing Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering, little card game, and reading little books. And so, but that led to me later becoming a Satanist. Mm -hmm. But it didn't happen overnight. And so I kind of wonder if Manasseh didn't uh, open himself up to some of these influences, which it may seem innocent, but what you're really opening yourself up to is direct satanic influence, which I'm sure Satan had a heyday as he was leading him to go one step further and a little bit more further until he was, like you mentioned, killing his own children. Yeah, I, th I, th I think you're right. You know, I think for us, it's almost natural. You see the, you see a child or a young person and, and the way that they behave and you think, well, I wonder what their parents are like. You know, I wonder what kind of environment they grew up in. And, and we look for all of these factors that could, you know, be influences for what we see now but in reality when you open the door to satan regardless of if you've had great parents with a great upbringing and a great environment and everything if you open that door which is your choice you know regardless of what your father is like you open that door the consequences are yours and and you know we give him an inch he'll take a foot when jesus uh, it, it was very active in his ministry. He dealt with a lot of demonic possession. Mm. I mean, the unclean spirits were in all these people being cast out. And uh, and you see demonic possession throughout the Bible in various ways. But, you know, the Old Testament, you don't see a lot of overt demonic possession, at least, by, at least named that way. Right. But I can look at this king and almost see yeah. that he was so open to the influence of Satan that he essentially had the same satanic possession as did you know, Pilate or King Herod or all the other wicked people we see that the Bible does mention um, how far they went. And so I think uh, there's a, such a danger of just even opening that door. And that's why God gives so many warnings about witchcraft and sorcery and astrology. It's not that he doesn't want us to uh, play around and have fun with, you know, Ouija boards and uh, people have fun with these. Oh, it's just for fun. But they don't see that that's opening a door to a deeper and more serious danger. Right. And if Hezekiah would have saw that, he may have avoided that. But, you know, and, and one thing I would say too is that uh, because of his uh, grandfather and great-grandfather and all them who weren't so faithful, the book of the law wasn't as known right, wasn't in his day. Yeah. yeah, we know that because later on, uh, it was his grandson, Josiah, who actually had to find the book of the law. In the temple. In the temple. Right. Because, yeah. yeah, you know, well, I'm, and this is, I don't know uh, if... Has, uh, Manasseh himself is responsible for uh, losing it, but I mean, how do you lose that? You wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> yes. 
So I, I think that the, you know, the, the fact is, and I, I, I've personally struggled with this at times, is that you look at these people with this rap sheet that you've said, um, and you know, maybe, maybe I'm exposing my own shortcomings here, but I almost look forward to the judgment that they're going to suffer for their actions. You know, it's like you read through the story and you're like, man, you're so wicked. Wait until you see what's going to happen to you, mm -hmm. you know, because you just expect that the, the scales would balance out. You reap what you sow and you read of this man burning his children and shedding blood, filling the streets and all of this. And it's almost like, just wait, it's coming. Well, I mean, even in Revelation, we find the, the the figure of those souls under the altar crying for justice. And I think if we don't have that sense of justice in our heart, pleading to mm -hmm. God, make this right, yeah. then there's something wrong, right? I think right. the Spirit of God, I mean, that's one thing He does is that the Spirit convicts of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. of judgment. So um, the Spirit certainly should should appeal to our own hearts and desire to see justice in this world. That doesn't mean that God... Um, doesn't want us to also have mercy. Mm. But, and I think that's where the, the story kind of takes this turn is that, you know, of all people, he would have, you know, he was the Hitler of the day, right? Mm. He was the one that uh, anybody who had a sense of justice would say, God, why are you letting this guy, you know, you've killed other people and, and into their lives for less. Why are you extending this man's life? Right. And you know, think about this. This is the king who reigned the longest of all kings in Israel and Judah, 55 years. 55 years. So, you know, I, I think that, that question of justice is a fair question. Um, but I think when you read the end of the story, mm. and ultimately the end of the story will be read when we're all in the kingdom, we'll be able to look back and say, okay, God, we see why. We see yeah. your hand in it. The subject is so messy because God has given us this innate sense of justice, yet at the same time, he's teaching us about his very character when at the times we want to slam down the gavel, he instead offers mercy. If you're anything like me, there's some instances, some things, there's times when that's just very hard to understand. When I see certain things, child abuse, domestic abuse, things of that nature, it's as if there's a fire in my belly and I genuinely want nothing more in that moment than to see something happen to the perpetrator of those actions that will permanently deter them from doing anything like that in the future. And so we cry out to God for justice. And yet, we don't want that gavel to fall on us. We don't want the justice that we deserve. No, for me, I want grace. So then I guess, I guess I have to be willing to offer it. For a person who's lived a generally good life, they've mm -hmm. tried to do what's right, and um, they've made mistakes, but you know they have made major mistakes to where at least the, where the world sees it that way. They can see, they can be a lot more harsher toward Manasseh, but those who lived like Manasseh, mm -hmm. you know, you put yourself, in, and by the way, Manasseh, he did some pretty bad stuff, but you think of some of the other heroes of the Bible, David, mm -hmm. murder and adultery, Paul, murder, the apostle Mass Paul, murder, um, and then you have Rahab, the harlot, mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene. Um, Peter was a racist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have all, I mean, and the reality is when we're really honest about the facts, 
Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned mm. and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us are sinners. So every one of us, if we asked and begged for justice, our justice is a lake of fire right. for every one of us. Yeah. And so we're not asking God for justice. We're asking God for mercy and for grace. Mm. And, and this is how I define these words. Uh, justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mm. And so I'm, I'm on the mercy and, and, and grace side of things. That's what I want. Yeah. Uh, justice, it sounds good to cry for it, you know, when you see others being wronged. But all things being equal, we're sinners, yeah. every one of us. And we all deserve the lake of fire. And I would say some deserve it worse than others. Um, and I do believe in the difference in degrees of sin. Sure. Uh, that's why, you know, thievery was not punished in the Bible the same way as adultery was. They're, they're majorly different kinds of sin. However, even the smallest sin is big enough to keep us out of paradise for eternity. Mm. And so anyway, with that perspective, when we see this U-turn that Manasseh takes, that gives me extreme hope. And that's why the story, that's why I say he's my unlikely hero, because who he is, what we just read about, is not who he stayed. And if he can change, then I can change. And if I can change, and he can change, then anybody out there, no matter how far they've fallen, how low they've gone, how much sin they've committed, there's hope for them. And I think that's the message that this story brings. Right. Because of his sins, you know, he's he's carried off into captivity. And it's, it's in captivity that the Bible says in uh, verse 12 of 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. Um, and it, it feels as though, you know, his, I mean, I don't know what the, what the captivity was actually like. I can imagine it, it wasn't a fun experience. They took him off with chains, literally, uh, I think the King's passage mentions mm -hmm. that they had fetters and chains in their nose even. So, and they're mentioned thorns. So yeah, if, if the, if the trip into captivity was with was that thorns bad? and chains, I can only imagine what it was like when they was there. Right. And, and so there he turns to the Lord and I feel like, you know, it's almost like, well, of course you're going to turn to the Lord there. <laughs> Foxhole prayer thing. Right. Yeah. It's like, you've got nothing else at that point. You're not even really still the king of your nation because you're not there. You know, you're in a different nation and you're a, a slave. Um, so of course you're going to turn to the Lord there. But I don't think I don't think God cares the conditions in which we turn to Him. If our hearts turn to Him, they turn to Him. And if it's just come, you know, freely in the fields as we're walking through, and it's a beautiful day, and the Spirit speaks to our hearts. Or if we are desperately wicked, as Scripture describes all of us, and in chains in a foreign nation, a heart that turns to the Lord is is never turned away. Yeah, there's not uh, a genuine prayer of humility and repentance that God doesn't hear. Mm. But God knows, and that's and that's where we have. You mentioned the, uh, the difficulty of you know forgiveness and mercy on somebody who's done terrible things. We don't know if somebody's humility is genuine or not. We know yeah. Judas. The Bible says he went and repented, which means he changed his mind. Um, but that we know that repentance was not a, a godly sorrow that led to that repentance. It was a selfish 
uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. Yeah, the consequences. Yeah, and I think we have a hard time seeing that because we can't read the hearts of men. Yeah. However, God knows if a prayer is from the heart, even if it is a foxhole prayer. Um, I mean, I know I've read many of testimonies of people who had a foxhole prayer. So, okay, God, you save me from this. I will be a preacher. I will go and serve you the rest of my life. I'll go to the mission field. And they actually go and do it because uh, God genuinely changed them in that moment. Then there's many stories I've heard of people who say that foxhole prayer who said, oh, great, I'm out of it, and completely forgot their commitments to God. God knows. We don't. So I can only imagine because of the end of the story that God saw that his prayer was a genuine repair of repentance. And I can only imagine uh, some of his dad's young entreaties coming back to him. You know, that, that 9, 10, 11-year-old, son, don't follow the way your friends are doing this. Don't go after the way of the heathen. Don't do. I can see him thinking about that and say, God, I've wronged you all those years, and I am so sorry. And, and I don't know. I don't, I don't think it says that he was asking for his place back on the throne. No. But if we keep reading the story here, it says, and you, you finished off in verse 13, it says, and he prayed to him, and he received his entreaty heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Yeah. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So even in that experience, Manasseh was still seeing God's hand at work. And so maybe his faith was the size of the mustard seed, but he had a mountain of a problem. And Jesus says that's what those mustard seed size amount of faith can do is move that mountain. And I just think it, it, it speaks to the, the, the thoroughness and the goodness of God that Manasseh could have repented and God said, okay, you're forgiven, but you are not going anywhere near that throne again. Yeah. You know, and I think of that, you know, many times in my own personal life as well, where I'm like, I've messed up. I've, I've let God down. You know, he's given me responsibilities and I haven't done what I should have done with them. I repent. God picks me up and I think, well, there goes that opportunity. Right. And he just leads you straight back into it. And he's like, here's another chance. Do it better. And I think with Manasseh, to know what he's done, and I mean, being the king, it's also going to be documented what he's done. Um, to, to have all of that on you and for God to say, here's another chance at everything, that is incredible. Amen. And I don't know that God always does that. I mean, yeah. King David, you know, you would think in, in his great position, he would have disqualified him from further uh, being a king. But he didn't. Mm -hmm. But I do think that obviously in positions of responsibility and trust, if you lose that trust, you know, you've, you've lost too much. Mm -hmm. And that person just cannot be restored to that position of authority. And, and I respect that. Um, the fact that God put him back on his throne, uh, I, all I can say, again, that's just another extension of God's mercy. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it was an opportunity for him to show his repentance because, you know, you can say anything in the jail cell. Right? You, can, you can make every promise and every guarantee, but genuineness or your evidence, rather, of, of repentance isn't shown until you actually do it. And that's where the story goes on and gives us the, the, the positive side, this U-turn experience. And you can skip down to verse uh, 15. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So that's the evidence of the repentance. Mm -hmm. And if he wasn't a king, how would he, back in that position, how would he be able to show that evidence? Right. And I, th I think 
I think what is profound then is the fact that we have potentially, I mean, maybe the potentially isn't even warranted here. We have the worst king in history and God saves him. Mm -hmm. And yet, and I think this is this is just the gospel, right? Yes. Is that the worst are saved, but they're not even just saved. They're then used, which goes against every kind of logical thought that you would have of what to do with this person who, as you've mentioned, this rap sheet, you know, you're not going to give them any of these opportunities because what if it goes wrong or blah, blah, blah. And yet God in what must just be the purest of purities says, you're going to do better now. Like you've got this. And, and it just doesn't just save him, saves him. Yes. And, and I don't mean just as if that's a small matter, but the fact that God would save someone like that and then put them into actual ministry and say, okay, now work for me, be the king that I've called you to be. That's beautiful, man. And you know, think if the story wasn't in the Bible. Yeah. Or we didn't have the story of David or the Apostle Paul. Um, if we don't have these redemption stories, there are people out there who just simply, you know, they, they, they have a sensitive conscience and they've done things wrong and they feel beat up all the time and they, they, they don't have that sense of peace with God. Mm. And to know that if God can take a man as, as wicked, I mean, he, he was a Satanist. As, as far as you can tell, you know, with his with his, his false worship and and you know and, and blaspheming God by setting up things in the temple. I mean, can you imagine the modern equivalent of somebody going and you know spray painting a church and and setting up? In fact, I was a little um, the other day I was watching some uh, something political and and they had set up a brewery inside of a church and I thought what a blasphemy mm. to 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 do that and, uh, and but even God can take somebody who's done something like that and turn them around. That gives me hope, and I pray that it gives many other people hope who need it, who are just hanging on by a thread. They're saying, can God save me? I can't tell you in ministry how many people have, have come up to me and asked me, I'm dozens, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. They don't know the theological implications sure. of all of it, but in their heart of hearts, they feel, is there hope for me? Can I be saved? The guilt is so big. Yeah. And, and I don't know what it is. I mean, for for a lot of them, it was, you know, it's just habitual sin that they just, mm -hmm. they, they were trying to give up. For others, it's something they did way, way, way in their past. They're right. wondering, can God even uh, forgive something like that? But if God can forgive child murder, mm -hmm. then he can forgive fill in the blank. He can forgive you. He can forgive me. But that means he can also forgive the very people that have hurt us in the first place. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus was trying to teach Peter. If you want forgiveness, you have to be willing to offer it. And perhaps you think that that person that hurt you doesn't deserve it. And you're probably right about that too. Yet that also disqualifies you from receiving it. Be careful. Sometimes if you hold a grudge for too long, soon enough, it'll be holding on to you. We're going deeper, so don't go anywhere. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. Did you know that the Statue of Liberty, a symbol of freedom for the world, was nearly lost at sea while being transported from France to New York in 1885? A French Navy ship was carrying hundreds of crates loaded with dismantled sculpture when a violent storm struck. 
the crew begged the captain to offload the heavy Lady Liberty for fear it would sink their vessel. But according to legend, the captain replied, No, we will go down before we give up Liberty. I think it's fair to say that Liberty is being attacked from all angles today, and so it's time to fight back. Amazing Facts is holding a global evangelistic series this year in New York City, starting September 20. This 18-part series seeks to bring liberty back to the people, but not through some sort of government or president. True liberty, which is found only in Christ, liberty from sin. So join us in praying for this event, and if possible, donating towards their goal of $3 million to make this happen. Visit amazingfacts.org for more information. History shapes identity, identity shapes mission, and a clear mission determines the trajectory of your future. Knowing where you come from is key to understanding your present purpose and your future mission. Linear's Journey is a series of videos that will take you on a journey through time, discovering the key people and events that have shaped the Christian faith. From the Waldenses to Martin Luther to Zwingli, from England to France, Switzerland to Germany, the light broke over the horizon of Europe, piercing through the dark ages and then spread out over the world. As the United States of America rose to supremacy, Christianity formed the bedrock of this great nation. And so from the Great Awakening to the Great Disappointment and beyond, Lineage follows the journey of God's church throughout time, immersing you in the places, the stories, and the people through whom Christianity has shone the brightest. Join us on a journey through time. Follow us on social media at Lineage Journey or check out our website at lineagejourney.com. I remember when my mother first told me that I was the product of rape, that my father, a friend of my mother's fiancé at the time, offered to take her home and instead took her to a field, knocked her unconscious and raped her in that field. Hearing that for the first time, it was as if a demon came into my heart and it just festered there for years, fueling feelings of anger and distrust. And it didn't magically go away when I met Jesus. I came to the point, though, when reading scripture that I had to make a decision. If I want to claim the cross, the life of Jesus Christ offered as forgiveness for my sins, then I had to be willing to offer forgiveness to the man who ruined my mother's life and didn't even stick around to try and make amends. These are the moments when Christianity has to either become real or just fade into insignificance. You want forgiveness, but are you willing to forgive? Yeah, I, I wish I knew this story um, early on in my in my Christian experience. I was going I was going door to door. Um, I was at an evangelism school, 
in, in the UK. I was going door to door and stumbled upon this man's door. And um, he turned us away immediately because he thought we were Jehovah Witnesses. And we were like, no, no, we're not, we're not. And then he turned us away again because he thought we were Mormons. And we were like, no, we're not Mormons either. And um, when we finally got into his house and sat down and spoke with him, and, and we were then going back um, every week to, to study with him. And he had a little boy who was like maybe four or five years old, cute little kid. And so one of us would do the study and the other one would play with the kid. Um, and I remember we got to a study on forgiveness and I was leading the study and I was so excited because, I mean, the forgiveness of God is, is the most beautiful message that we have. Amen. And I was sharing it with him and every week he was excited with, with the truth that we were bringing and, and how it was from the scriptures. That week as I was sharing it, he was completely stoic. There was no emotive response, no cues that mm. he, he was getting. I was like, he, he told me after that um, he didn't believe me that that was available. Like it was too good to be true. Yeah, and I was like, no, no, like it's, those are the same words that you believed last week. You know, like God <laughs> God can, can save you. And um, he shared that just a few years back, um, just after the birth of his son, um, he was a sniper mm. for the military. Um, and he was in the Middle East and he said that he was stationed in a place where he simply had to take out anyone that moved. And he said that, you know, in the space of about 48 hours, he had killed numerous men and their wives and their children. Um, and he, you know, he gets home after his service and, and his, his wife can't deal with it. She leaves him leaves the kid also and so he's at home ptsd toddler um and we come to his door with this message of forgiveness and i'm just like brother listen god can cleanse you you know i know that you're struggling with this guilt and i know that it feels like that's going to be you for the rest of your life but the lord can literally make you clean and he said no he said that he just couldn't comprehend that God would be that loving. And that was the last study we ever did. Wow. We, the next week we went back to his house, he didn't open the door. Wow. I was heartbroken, right? you know, because if anyone needed that, it was him. Yet it, for him, the weight of the guilt was so great, his mind literally couldn't comprehend that God is as good as he is. Yeah. And, it, you know, can you imagine being one of the, the victims on the side of that who found out his story mm. and for them to forgive yeah. him would be almost unimaginable. Nobody would, you know, you'd almost excuse the person for not forgiving right. a monster like that. And yet God, and we don't, we forget, we forget this. When somebody is hurt, God is the ultimate victim. Mm. He, nothing goes to, to, we, nothing happens to us that it doesn't first go through him. He knows what it's like to suffer. He was the yeah. ultimate innocent one on the cross who suffered for our sins. He didn't deserve a single bit of his suffering. And yet God is willing to forgive. Mm. That idea of God's love for us should humble every one of our hearts and should, you know, subdue it. And because of that, we can forgive others. When we see how much God has forgiven us, I don't know. It's, it's, um, 
like I said, I take it very personal because I've done perhaps not as uh, drastic as that man, but I've done enough wicked things in my life that I need to know stories like this mm-hmm. to give me hope. Because, and I, I'll, I'll be honest, after I gave my heart to Jesus in 1998, there were probably three or four major times where I was ready to go back. Mm-hmm. And it all hinged on this, this idea of, can God really save me? And uh, I, I finally came to the point where I just, you know, you see all the stories. They, just, they all, uh, you know, accumulate to where you can't ignore the reality. You know, Jesus told, uh, had that encounter with Peter in which, you know, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? You know, 70 times seven, right? Uh, and if that's how much we're supposed to forgive each other, mm-hmm. how much more is God willing to forgive us? Um, the woman that washed Jesus' feet with her own tears and her hair. Um, and then Simon was critical about it. And Jesus gave that parable about the man who was forgiven a little and the man who was forgiven a lot. Who for, who, he said, who loves more? Mm-hmm. The one who is forgiven a little or the one who is forgiven much? And he said, Jesus said, those who are forgiven little love little. Those who are forgiven much love much. And so God is in the business of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I'll just read a passage here. It's one of my favorites from Micah 7 verse 18. It says, who is a God like you, mm. pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Mm. And that's what God's done in my life. That's why Manasseh is this hero of mine, because if God can, let me just give you a little summary of this. I found Jesus when I was behind bars. Now, I wasn't taken off with a chain in my nose, thankfully, but I was in this, I was 15 years old, locked in a solitary cell by myself. I had a bunk, a toilet, and a sink, and I picked up the Bible to prove it wrong. I was a Satanist at the time. I mentioned that, and I hated the idea of God. Now, Mm -hmm. the, the Satanic religion that I was in wasn't even a theistic religion. It didn't have an actual belief in uh, a literal devil. We believe in the devil is kind of our mascot. You know, it wasn't, we were more atheists than anything. But the philosophy we had was like Alistair Crowley said, you know, do what you will harm, you know, well, the, 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 my, sorry, my witchcraft philosophy was do what you will harm you none. That was when I was in Wicca. But when I became a Satanist, it was, you know, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. So let's, let's backtrack. How did you get there in the first place? I picked up a book on witchcraft that my brother gave to me, and it was just about how we can manipulate others. We can control others. And I like this idea of power. I was a kid dabbling around in the occult. How old were you? I was about 14 at that time. And I just got involved in drugs and alcohol, and and I've been partying, and my whole life is just changing because I was this kind of this dorky kid that nobody wanted to be around. And... Now I was starting to get the social group because I, I discovered my dad's stash of pot and I was now able to take as much as I wanted from him. My dad never noticed he had so much mm-hmm. and I was able to sell it and use it and I was invited to parties and I had this new set of friends and mm-hmm. and so I got into the whole goth movement, you know, black, you know, makeup, fingernails and well, I got into, um, I got arrested. I kept getting arrested time after time for assaults and burglaries and for drug possessions and all these things, but they kept slapping me on the wrist because I'm a juvenile Mm -hmm. and letting me go. Well, um, so, but I still ran from the law. So one time we got pulled over and we all took off running and I ran into this, this club where, uh, they didn't serve alcohol. So T 
teenagers were invited, but it was heavy metal music. That was my favorite music. Mm. And I met this man there who was a Satanist. And he offered to perform a ritual for me to keep me from getting caught from the police and to take away my nervousness of it all. Cause I was like shaking and sure. all this stuff. And I was high and all. Anyway, we went through this whole satanic ritual calling on Lucifer. I, you know, it was, I found out more later about the whole ritual. It was like pretty intense stuff. And, uh, but immediately after this, 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 this prayer to Satan, my, my nerves were calm. I wasn't even, I didn't even feel high anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just felt this invigoration. And I decided I'm going to follow this up. So I went out and got a satanic Bible and started reading it. I just love this philosophy. You know, in witchcraft, you know, it was like, yes, you can manipulate others, but you can't manipulate others to do what's uh, wrong or hurtful to them, right? But in Satanism, the philosophy is you're your own God, which, by the way, is the same teaching from the Garden of Eden. Satan has always been telling people you're a God. And so that's what he's telling people today is that, you, you know, follow your heart. Do your own thing. You, you know, you are your own person. Live it up. You only got one life to live here, and much of that involved mocking Christianity and being a menace to society. And uh, a lot of—I'm not going to get into the details of it—but it's a pretty messed up, perverse, wicked life. And it, you know, went deeper and deeper into drugs and alcohol and hanging out with the other people that are following these things. We just did some pretty bad stuff. So that there's no restraint. Yeah, well, essentially, the only restraint you have is self-preservation. Sure. And because you're not even thinking clearly, you're not even using your frontal lobe at all, it's suppressed from all the drugs and and um, this new philosophy. So yeah, you're doing whatever you want to do, and it's, you know, you're hurting people in the process, but you're so oblivious to it. And I, I think about what Paul said, that, you know, I did these things in ignorance and God had mercy. I don't know that I was so ignorant about it, but I do know that, um, it, the spiral got out of control and I, the drugs got worse and worse, um, did not have any care or respect for my parents. Well, I eventually got, uh, arrested after running away. I was gone for like two weeks and I got arrested and they put me in drug rehab. And that's when I, um, basically was going to play the game to get through drug rehab because they had all these charges hanging over me. They were going to put me, they were going to lock me up until I'm 21. I'm, tw- I'm 15 years old this time. They're going to lock me up till I'm 21. Well, nobody wants to be locked up till they're 21. Right. So I decided I'm going to play this game, get through this drug rehab program. What kind of drugs were you taking? It was all of them. I mean, it was, uh, my limitation was simply money and accessibility. But I mean, I did, you know, all the, uh, you know, amphetamines and, uh, you know, marijuana was the most, alcohol, of course. And then um, anytime we can get our hands on any kind of, uh, you know, mushrooms or acid or stuff like that, it was just crazy life everything you can get your hands on. So when I was in the drug rehab facility, uh, they took away my satanic Bible. They really um, tried to make my life miserable. And I hated them all because there was kind of this Christian concept overarching everything. It wasn't a Christian program, but it was this religionist. I hated Christians. And even though I didn't believe in their God, I hated their God, right? Mm. Well, the man who was the drug counselor who was assigned to me he seemed to have it out for me specifically. And after uh, he caught me smoking a cigarette and threatened to kick me out of the program, I was done. And so I got a knife and I attacked that man and I tried to kill him. Hmm. Well, they arrested me and I went to juvenile facility and he went to the hospital and ended up dying about five months later. 
from those wounds? No, they didn't charge me with that. He died of an aneurysm, but his, we went to court later on and his mother basically said, if I hadn't done what I did, he would still be alive. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I certainly bear a lot of uh, personal responsibility for it on, on my side of things, but they charged me with assault with a deadly weapon. And I was, uh, because I was a juvenile, uh, they said, you know, I was 15 at the time, they said, you know, you do an adult crime, you need to do adult time. And so they certified me as an adult and sent me to county jail. And so I went, to, but that, and that's really where the most, um, that's where the powerful part of my story comes in, where I've read about Manasseh, is in that juvenile detention center at 15, I picked up the Bible to prove it wrong. I want to put the Christians in their place and find, because the, the, the Satanic Bible literally says that the Christian Bible is riddled full of contradictions and errors. Mm. So I figured I can just find all the contradictions and errors and show these to Christians and make fun of their religion. And So even even behind bars, that was your goal. Yeah, indeed. I, I, I did, even behind bars, hate Christians. Um, I was suicidal. I didn't want to live. I figured if I'm going to go out, I'm going to take out as many people with me. In fact, my the guy I attacked originally... I decided I want to kill him, and I'm going to kill myself afterward. I just didn't get the opportunity. And um, I was even going to try the whole uh, death by cop, you know, make the cop shoot me. But that didn't work out. So, and I'm thankful, looking back. I'm, right. pretty, yeah, I'm very thankful to be alive. But when I was locked up, I, uh, I, I, my antagonism was still there toward Christianity. I, I, and I just wanted to find these proofs in the Bible of how wrong it is. Mm. And I started in Genesis, as you would any books. I, I never read the Bible before in my life. I wasn't raised a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so I went through and started reading. And I just read all these stories. And it turns out the Bible isn't all I thought it was. Not only did I not find the contradictions and errors, but I discovered that this God, whom I didn't even believe in and I even hated, ironically, this God pursued man uh, relentlessly out of love to save him. A man's always running from God, but God's trying to save them. And along the way, I came across the story of Saul and David and how Saul was trying to kill David. And, you know, David was his counselor and Saul was trying to uh, uh, kill his counselor. And David had mercy on him. That blew my mind. I'm like, wow. And so in that story, I kind of had a heart change. I didn't become a Christian yet. In fact, I didn't even know what a Christian was. I didn't, I didn't know who Jesus was. But I read through the rest of the Bible. I discovered that this, this is what I want to live. I want this kind of faith. Mm-hmm. Then I read the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, it shocked me that it was in there four times. I mean, after the first time, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I love the story of Jesus. This is who the Jesus is. I knew he was a baby, like right. all the Christmas stories. I didn't know he grew up. Mm-hmm. And so then reading Mark, it's like, whoa, it's in there twice, you know, <laughs> three or four times. And... I, I just fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love with his compassion. He loved people. And I figured this, that he could love me because I felt so unlovable, mm. right? And I struggled with this. I mentioned earlier, so many times in my Christian experience, could God really love me? But I saw it in Jesus, this compassion for the worst of the worst. Zacchaeus, right? Mm. The scoundrel, this thief. Jesus saw something in him and had hope for him. You mentioned uh Peter and all his problems, right? Jesus took him under his wing right. and felt, I can I can work with this guy. So reading, and then Paul's story, of course, he was a persecutor of Christians. So all those stories worked together and I, I just, I couldn't resist it anymore. So I, I gave my heart to the Lord. I prayed the most probably lame prayer 
But even that, like I mentioned earlier, Saul's prayer when he was in prison, my prayer, you know, I don't remember the exact words, but it went something like, God, I don't know why you would even want somebody like me, but here I am. Mm-hmm. Do something with me, <laughs> you know? And, and that was the beginning of this journey. And so I mentioned I was certified as an adult, 15 years old. Sorry, I turned 16 in juvenile detention center. I was certified as an adult, went to county jail. So I was at 16 with all these grown criminals, right? Bank robbers, murderers. Uh, I had one cellmate. He had just got locked up for murdering five people, uh, a mother, her three kids, and their unborn child. And he was now my cellmate. And uh, he was out of his mind. The guy was literally a lunatic. And I'm praying with one eye open. You know, it's, this is the craziness of it all. But in all that, my faith was growing, and I was meeting with other people, Christians that were struggling, and you know, there are from people from all different faiths and religions, and just tell me about your story. And so I really grew a lot during that time. Studied my Bible. I got a Strong's Concordance sent to me, and with a Strong's Concordance in the Bible, I just studied everything, mm. and started writing all these different churches, saying, "Hey, what do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe?" And they all wrote me back. And so it was a quite an adventure. How long were you in the? So I did 10, so a year in the juvenile facility, 10 months in county jail. And because I became a Christian, I wasn't going to deny my crime, my assault. So I told the judge, please have mercy. And he said, uh, you know, after some deliberation, he said uh, he was going to give me 20 years in prison. And so they shackled me up and they sent me off to prison. And so I spent my 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26th, 27th, and my 28th birthday locked up. But when I was 28, I saw the parole board. And they said, we'll let you out next year if you keep up doing the right stuff and stay out of trouble. And uh, so, yeah, they let me out on my 29th year. So I did 14 years total. When I was 29, I got out. And uh, during all this, I saw people get stabbed to death in front of me, assaults all the time. I just, it was, it was a crazy place to be a Christian because... You, you think there would be a lot more people in prison who are Christians. There are some who are playing the game, but genuine Christians who are wanting to follow Jesus and, you know, study their Bibles, a handful. I was in a prison for most of the time with about 2,000 inmates, mm-hmm. and there was about six of us wow. that just really genuinely hungered for the Lord. And But because my faith was genuine, I think that God recognized that. There was a prayer I prayed almost every day. It says, and this is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7, it says, when a man's ways pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I'm like, God, I want my enemies to be at peace with me. And it was a very dangerous place, but God protected me through that. So many miracles of God's uh, watch, care, and protection over me. But that goes back to the story of Manasseh. Mm-hmm. When I got out, right, when I had the opportunity to live the life, even some of my own family members were naysayers. Oh, no, he's going to go back to it. He's going to go back and live for the world. He's going to go back to drugs. He's going to... And so many of my friends did. I saw people come in and out of prison three or four times, going out with every good intention, mm-hmm. coming back saying, oh, I messed up. Mm-hmm. But I had my opportunity to demonstrate my repentance. And so after I got out in 2012, um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any work history, didn't have any education, didn't have any uh, uh, experience uh, in my favor uh, that any resume or application would, would look good. But God favored and gave me grace, and my very first job was a Bible worker. Wow. I got a call from a pastor randomly. He's like, you know, I heard you learn the Bible when you're in prison. I said, yeah, well, come work for us as a Bible worker. I'm like, well, I don't have a job, so let's do it. Now tell me what a Bible worker is. Mm-hmm. 
And so I went and taught, just like you were doing with Bible studies, I was going door to door and did that for about two years. And then um, uh, joined an evangelistic team uh, with a ministry called Amazing Facts. Did that for about six years, traveling around, just holding seminars across the country, around the world really, traveling many other countries. And, um, and then the last three years, uh, been pastoring in Indiana the, with uh, a church that just is on fire and you know wanting to serve. And so it, it's, in each one of those cases, God called me to it. I didn't ask for it. I wasn't looking for it. I even said no to the pastor job about four times mm. before God said, no, you better go. So like Manasseh, God can take the worms of the earth and make a butterfly out of them. And I just, that gives me so much hope, right? So much encouragement. And if God can use me, he can use anybody. I really believe that. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you've just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or hearken back to a previous episode, you can find us now at wtdtpodcast.com. If you've been moved by this ministry through this episode or others, and you'd like to support us financially, you can become a patron. And if you do, you'll get early access to our episodes, discounts on our store, and access to our other podcasts a 40-day devotional podcast designed to kickstart your walk with God. We're calling it WTDT40. If this sounds like something you're interested in, or you just want to support in general, visit patreon.com forward slash WTDT to find out more. As always, please do subscribe, leave us a review, and follow our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, and now TikTok too. We'll see you on the next episode. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.